Hello, and welcome to 15-Minute History. Each week, we teach you about important people, events, and places in 15 minutes. If this is your first time here, then thanks for joining us. Stay connected with us wherever you listen to podcasts and at our website at aetgroup.org, where you can find these recordings and transcripts for each episode. Now, let's start the show. Large-scale machinery calls for absolute and strict unity of will, which directs the joint labors of hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people. A thousand wills are subordinated to one will. Vladimir Lenin, The Immediate Tasks of the Soviet Government Hundreds of people gathered at the station as word spread of an important train that would be arriving soon. He's coming, they whispered. He'll be here soon. They glanced at the soldiers lining the railway lines, the red banners of the Petrograd Soviet in their hands, their rifles slung lazily over their shoulders. When they heard a train whistle in the distance, the crowd grew more excited. Then, as the large locomotive rounded a corner and approached the station, the crowd burst into cheers. They sang the revolutionary anthem, the Internationale, waved red flags, and cheered as their liberator approached. The train stopped at the platform, but for several minutes no one emerged. Watchful eyes peered out from behind blinds in the windows, and the crowd faltered momentarily. Then the door opened, and with a shout from the crowd there emerged the object of their hopes, their desires, their prayers. Short, bald, with a black goatee and piercing eyes, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin stepped from the German train onto his home soil for the first time in 17 years. Lenin's arrival in Petrograd and the revolution he launched in November 1917, October in the old Julian calendar, was one of the most important events in the turbulent history of the 20th century. For nearly 300 years, the House of Romanov had governed the vast Russian Empire but the crisis of the Great War had brought the Tsar's dynasty to an end. In its wake, there arose a social democratic regime led by Alexander Kerensky, who insisted that the war against Germany and Austria-Hungary would continue. But the Russian people, who had already suffered for nearly three years of the worst war in human history to that time, were weary of the conflict. They wanted bread, jobs, and peace. Lenin, a Marxist revolutionary and leader of the Bolshevik faction of Russian communists, saw his opportunity to seize power and begin the longed-for proletarian revolution. He schemed with German agents in Switzerland, where he had lived in exile since 1907, to return to his homeland with the help of his country's greatest enemy. There is great irony in the fact that the Germans helped Lenin overthrow the Russian government and create the Soviet Union, given the later history of the two nations. Lenin's return to Russia sparked a general uprising of Marxist Soviets, or local workers' councils, all across the empire. By the end of the year, Lenin had overthrown Kerensky's provisional government and seized control of the entire country. He then signed the devastating Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with Germany, surrendering nearly a third of European Russia to the Germans, and set about his task of organizing the workers of Russia under his new utopian Marxist regime. He also planned to use Russia as a springboard for a worldwide proletarian uprising that would lead to what Karl Marx had written was the end of history the overthrow of the middle-class bourgeoisie all across the globe, and the final destruction of capitalism. Russia Before the Revolution Russian peasants at the dawn of the 20th century were some of the most oppressed people anywhere in the world. 
They possessed no real freedoms, and most were tied to the lands they worked and were overseen by the ruling boyars, or local nobles. In effect, Russia was a feudal state, much like the nations of Western Europe had been during the Middle Ages. Food was scarce. Families were often brutalized by the boyars or by the Tsar's police force, the Cossacks. The only solace for most Russians was religion, but the Russian Orthodox Church was tied to the corrupt regime in St. Petersburg and enabled the ruling class to continue its oppression of the masses. Tsar Nicholas II, whom the Russian people called their little father, had no interest and little understanding of the world beyond the walls of his many palaces at Tsarskoye Silo outside the capital. He spent his days doting on his children or meeting with his ministers to secure the wealth and power of the dynasty. As Tsar and autocrat of all the Russias, Nicholas had been given his throne by God and wielded absolute power over the people of his empire. His wife, the German princess Alex of Hesse, looked after his interests better than he did, but her worldview was soon corrupted by a degenerate monk called Rasputin, a man with voracious appetites and total control over the Tsarina because he claimed to be the voice of God on earth and could mitigate the deadly illness which ravaged her son Alexei, heir to the throne. In short, the rulers of the vast lands of Russia had no understanding of their people's suffering. To them, all that truly mattered was their own lives and their own power. This neglect of the Russian people led directly to the downfall of the Tsar's regime in 1917. Twelve years earlier, after a riot in St. Petersburg, Nicholas had created the Duma, Russia's elected legislature, to give the people the illusion of a voice in government. That same year, war with Japan broke out and the empire suffered one humiliating defeat after another. The people of Russia cried out for peace, for jobs, and for food as famine had devastated the countryside. Hundreds of thousands of peasants starved to death. Yet the Tsar showed absolutely no concern. When a large delegation of peasants, led by an Orthodox priest, who turned out to be an agent of the secret police, came to the palace at Tsarskoye Selo to petition their little father for help, they were turned away by the guards, and when they refused to leave, the guards opened fire and killed 92 innocent people in what became known as Bloody Sunday. Revolutionary groups had existed in Russia since before the 1905 revolt, but they grew bolder each month as the Russian people turned away from the Tsar and toward anyone who promised relief from their suffering. The most prominent Russian revolutionary movement was the Social Democratic Labor Party, which had operated in exile after March 1898 when its delegates were arrested by the police in Minsk. The RSDLP was made up of three factions, the majority Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, the minority Mensheviks, under Julius Martov, and a small group of non-factional members whose spokesman was Leon Trotsky. The two main factions differed on who should be considered a member of the party and on the methods by which the revolution would come to Russia. Eventually, Lenin seized control of the entire party apparatus, expelled the Mensheviks and brought Trotsky's group into line, and created what eventually became the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1912. Five years later, when he seized control of the Russian state, the CPSU became the only legal political party in the country, and all other organizations, including the Mensheviks, were banned and their leaders arrested and either exiled to Siberia or murdered. Civil War and the Birth of the Soviet Union The Bolshevik revolt against Kerensky and their seizure of power sparked a civil war in Russia as anti-communist groups battled the ruling Soviets in cities and towns across the empire. Over the next four years, Bolshevik power gradually extended across Russia from Petrograd as its Red Army battled various groups collectively known as Whites. These included officers and soldiers loyal to the Tsar, the Cossacks, right-wing political parties, and the surviving Mensheviks. 
The Whites were aided by the Allied nations both during and after the Great War, with expeditionary forces being sent to Russia from France, Great Britain, the United States, and Japan to hold back the Bolshevik assaults. In the end, the Reds triumphed, and in various revolutionary tribunals held during and after the war, they systematically eliminated all opposition to their new regime. During the Russian Civil War, many leaders gained notoriety within Russia who would later go on to achieve worldwide fame, or more accurately, infamy. Felix Dzerzhinsky became the head of the All-Russian Extraordinary Commission, or Cheka, which organized what became known as the Red Terror. He brutally murdered or exiled more than a million people who were deemed disloyal or held counter-revolutionary ideas. Leon Trotsky, who had once opposed factionalism and urged unity in the cause of world socialism, commanded the Red Army and supervised many war crimes, including the murder of Tsar Nicholas II, Tsarina Alexandra, and the five royal children. Three military commanders in the Red Army, Semyon Budyoni, Clement Voroshilov, and Semyon Timoshenko, participated in the defense of the southern city of Tsaritsyn and would later serve their nation during the Great Patriotic War when Germany invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941. Most important to history, however, was a Georgian revolutionary and early compatriot of Lenin's named Joseph Stalin, who led the defense of Tsaritsyn against the Whites' assaults in 1919. Stalin's name was soon spoken with both reverence and fear within the Communist Party, and when he became its chairman in 1924, he used it to gain greater influence in the country and eventually to succeed Vladimir Lenin as leader of the Soviet Union. On December 28, 1922, more than a year after the Bolsheviks' victory over the Whites and in a brief war with Poland, the heads of the four main Soviet Socialist Republics signed the Treaty on the Creation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. This new country, which had expanded to include 15 republics by 1940, was theoretically ruled by the Supreme Soviet, a collection of representatives of the hundreds of individual Soviets from across the ten time zones of the USSR. In practice, however, the Soviet Union was far from a parliamentary democracy. It was a military dictatorship with power concentrated in the hands of the Politburo, a collection of bureaucrats and army officers led by its chairman, Vladimir Lenin, until his death in 1924. The Soviet Union was the world's first communist state, but its international propagandist and revolutionary organization, Comintern, spread revolutionary ideas far beyond its borders. Within two generations, Marxist uprisings on every continent except Antarctica had led to the creation of communist states built on the model of Lenin's 1917 revolution. By the midpoint of the 20th century, the world was divided into free and communist zones, and the military, economic, scientific, technological, and cultural divisions between these two worlds, combined with the new inventions of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles, led to the most dangerous period in world history, the Cold War. Life in the Soviet Union During the Russian Civil War, Lenin and his collaborators imposed their Marxist ideology with ruthless efficiency, totally unconcerned with the impact it would have on those whom they ruled. The Russian peasants, who had longed for an end to oppression and embraced Lenin's promise of work, food, and peace, now lived under Lenin's policy of war communism. In the interest of maintaining the Red Army's fighting strength and the survival of the state in its battle against the Whites, every aspect of life in Russia was brought under the Politburo's central control. Private enterprise was forbidden, all workers were required to continue in their jobs, trade unions were banned and strikes punishable by death, rationing of food and other essentials of life was imposed, and all food supplies were seized by the government and distributed at the direction of the Supreme Economic Council. 
Lenin's words, written in the immediate tasks of the Soviet government and quoted at the start of this podcast, were now to be put into action. Historians have debated the merits of war communism as a military necessity, but for the peasants of Russia, its impact was devastating. Few objective accounts of life under war communism reached the outside world, but with the opening of Soviet archives after 1991, it is now possible to assemble a reasonably accurate picture of what these poor people went through during this period in Russian history. During one of the show trials of the 1930s, in which Joseph Stalin purged the CPSU of many dissenting voices, Russian peasants were summoned to Moscow to offer testimony of how they had been mistreated by local bureaucrats who reported to the Supreme Economic Council. The authenticity of these statements has been subject to doubt, but given the sheer number and their alignment with testimony from those who escaped the USSR and other communist regimes who implemented similar policies, it is likely that the words which follow represent an accurate picture of the history of that period. Igor Semyonovich Poltrakov of Yuzovka, Ukrainian SSR My family and I lived on a small farm outside Yuzovka. We raised cattle and grew grain on our land. One day, the local commissar of the SEC came to us and said that we needed to surrender what food we had because the whites were nearby and our soldiers needed food. I agreed, and we gave the man all the bread and milk in our home. He then departed. That evening, Red Army soldiers came to our home and said that the man had seen us hoarding food. They denounced us as counter-revolutionary and said we would pay the price. They shot each of my bulls and took my cows. Then they burned our fields. Two of the soldiers then tried to take my daughter Yelena with them. When my son Rishek tried to stop them, one man took out his pistol. He shot my boy in the face. Valentin Borisovich Petrov of Chita, Russian SFSR. The commissars took everything we had, even the few pots and utensils my wife had in the kitchen. We did not resist, even when they stole the last grain of wheat from our barn, which my sister and her husband had sent to us because of the famine. Soon we were starving, and I walked into town to ask the commissars for some food. I am a patriotic Russian and a good socialist, but they said I had too much food already, but we had nothing left. I watched my wife and young son starve to death. Mikhail Yosefovich Martov of Moscow, Russian SFSR. I was a worker in an arms factory in Moscow. We had very little in our home, but I was always able to feed my family. Unlike other comrades who have testified here today, the SEC did not seize my property or take food from the mouths of my family. But at the factory, our supervisors told us that if we did not work hard, we would be punished. One afternoon, I had been at my place since dawn without a break. I was desperately hungry but wanted to work for our socialist victory. But I could not. I had to rest. I raised my hand and a supervisor came over. I asked for five minutes to rest and relieve myself. He said yes. But as I got up to leave, a commissar of the Red Army came over to me. He shouted at me and said I was a white sympathizer. I tried to return to work, but he pulled a club from his belt and raised it. You are a traitor to the motherland, he screamed. He beat me until I could no longer stand. Then he kicked me in the stomach and head until I fell unconscious. I was dismissed from work and drafted into the Red Army. Note, Martov lost an arm and a leg during the Battle of Tsaritsyn, but was awarded the Order of Lenin for heroism. When a famine struck the Soviet Union in 1921, nearly five million people starved to death. In Moscow, Lenin and the Politburo realized that the loss of so many workers in Russia and the failure of war communism to create economic growth meant that a new system was needed. 
The following year, Lenin introduced the New Economic Policy, which blended state socialism with market capitalism to create a mixed economy. Essentially, the Soviet Union became what modern political scientists would call a social democracy, in which private enterprise is permitted but regulated by the government. This angered many hardline Marxists within the CPSU, but they were mollified by Lenin's assurance that the NEP was a temporary measure to repair the economy after the Civil War. On Lenin's death in 1924, the troika who succeeded him of Stalin, Lev Kamenev, and Grigory Zinoviev continued the NEP, but when Stalin became sole ruler of the USSR in 1927, he abandoned this policy and instituted his first five-year plan for the development of the national economy. Stalin believed that with the correct leadership and direction from the center of power in Moscow, the Soviet economy could match and surpass the free market economies of the Western democracies. Eventually, 13 five-year plans would direct the Soviet economy from 1928 to 1991, and their outcomes have been much debated by historians of the Soviet Union. The plans did provide enough resources for the Soviet Union to win the war against Germany, with tremendous help from the United States and Great Britain, and to make the first steps in the space race of the 1960s. However, their ability to create genuine economic prosperity for the Soviet people is highly questionable. To cite just one statistic among many when it comes to Soviet economic output, from the years 1922 to 1991, the USSR was able to produce enough food to feed its population for just one year, this despite the fact that all the agricultural lands within Soviet borders was theoretically capable of growing enough food to feed all of humanity for each of those 69 years. Turning point. Real communism hasn't been tried. The creation of the Soviet Union produced many turning points in human history. It was the world's first communist state. It led to the oppression of millions of people for much of its existence and some of the worst losses of life in human history. Its nuclear arsenal and vast conventional army was arguably the greatest threat to human freedom for almost half a century. But perhaps most interestingly, it is often dismissed by proponents of state socialism today as not real communism. This is an interesting development in historiography, because in the 13 five-year plans which governed the Soviet economy, the degree to which communism and state control of the economy was implemented varied wildly. War communism was full-on Marxism with no economic liberties, while the NEP was a social democracy on the model of many modern Western nations. The five-year plans all fell somewhere in the middle of these two extremes on what one might call the communism spectrum, but none of them created genuine economic prosperity for a majority of the people who lived in the Soviet Union. Yes, some people did prosper under Soviet rule, especially the nomenclatura, bureaucrats and state-sanctioned businessmen in the major cities, but from 1922 to 1991, there was never a time when a majority of Soviet citizens were better off than even the poorest citizens of free-market Western nations. And yet, from Washington, D.C. and California to Paris and London, Western socialists and social democrats continue to suggest that Marxist ideas of collectivism and state control of the economy will eventually work if the right people are in charge or if the right mix of free enterprise and state socialism is found and implemented. When one considers the lessons of history, both the facts of life in the Soviet Union and the abstract ideology of Marxism and its accompanying rejection of objective facts, it is certainly possible that no level of centralized control, of subordinating a thousand wills to one, can create economic prosperity for all while still maintaining the fundamental natural rights of mankind. Thank you for joining us on 15-Minute History. 
please take a moment and leave us a review and tell your friends about this podcast. We hope you will join us for our discussion on this topic and tune in next week as we walk in history's footsteps 15 minutes at a time.